0: Hello everyone. Thanks for listening to Come Follow Me Insights with Taylor and Tyler presented by Scripture Central. We use a lot of visuals in our videos, so if you want to see the visuals, we invite you to find us on YouTube. Thanks for listening and enjoy.
1: I'm Taylor. And I'm Tyler. This is Scripture Central's Come Follow Me Insights. Today, First and 2 Timothy, Titus, and Philemon. So four
0: epistles, and we're gonna cover obviously these epistles in their order they they are in the bible based on their order of size the length and the shortest being that last one Philemon we'll cover that last but let me just say up front if you're only going to watch a part of this episode don't don't miss the part on Philemon he is he always gets skipped and I'll just be honest with you he's my second favorite overlooked book uh, of the overlooked books in scripture my my favorite of all is hosea and my second favorite is philemon it is loaded with incredible principles that often just get skipped over cuz it's so short and and it's sometimes hard to make sense of so uh be sure to to stick with us let's jump in first with the the first epistle to timothy from paul this one it it is so beautiful as you get this this mentor, Paul, teaching Timothy principles of appropriate leadership and administration of the church. As Paul is again in prison, he spent lots of time behind bars um, or on house arrest, he has left Timothy in charge of the, the administration and the leadership of the church in Ephesus, a pretty big assignment for a fairly young man apparently, based on what we're going to read in 2 Timothy. And so it's as if Timothy has been appointed to be something like we would maybe today call a stake president, who's going to be calling bishops, who's going to be administering the the affairs of the church in Ephesus. And so it's kind of a, a little handbook of instructions for Timothy in
1: that setting. Now remember, in the Greco-Roman world, Ephesus was this very cosmopolitan place, lots of pagan gods, there's lots of uh, licentiousness going on, and there seems to be quite a bit of disharmony going on in the ward and in the community in Ephesus of the Christians, and that people are struggling to know how they should be living, or perhaps they have been ignoring the counsel they'd originally received from Paul. So... Paul is going to give principled instruction for how to deal with that, as well as from his cultural context, he's gonna give some advice that Timothy should apply given the cultural context. One of the things Paul wants to do is, he wants the Christians to live in peace and harmony within the Greco-Roman world and not to create problems. And that being the case, sometimes his advice uh, fits really well in his ancient environment and in our cultures today, we might see that some of the advice may not fit perfectly. Principles are true, right? Live in harmony with people, be kind to one another. Those principles are everlasting, but sometimes the contextual application may change. And so we always wanna keep that in mind as we're looking at these passages. Look for the principles, but make sure to be clear about the different cultural contexts and how some things may not apply in the same way in our day
0: very helpful. So, after he, he gives his typical uh, initial few verses to this epistle, stating that he's an apostle of Jesus Christ and giving his nod to the Godhead, then you come to verse 3, as I besought thee to abide still at Ephesus, when I went into Macedonia, that thou mightest charge some that they teach no other doctrine. Because there's this, keep in mind in that greco roman Greco-Roman world. Um, they love philosophy. They love sitting around and listening to tales, and what is your view, and what is your perspective and and philosophizing? Debating, debating back and forth. Look at verse four. Neither give heed to fables and endless genealogies which minister questions rather than godly edifying, which is in faith. So do. So a couple of things here. Let's look back at this word, fables. The word is mythos, these myths, Greek mythology. It's alive and well, and it has been for 400 years in this, in this region of the world. And so it's, the, the roots run pretty deep when it comes to their, their telling and retelling and interpreting and reinterpreting of these stories and trying to find meaning. But you'll notice most of the time, those discussions don't lead to edification, or the way he words it here, godly edifying. They just lead to, they they just minister to more questions. So stop and think about this for a minute. If you ask the wrong questions, you're going to end up getting the wrong answers. Even, Even if it's the right answer to the question that was asked, it's still gonna be wrong because we were asking the wrong questions. It's not going to lead to godly edifying. So it's fascinating that that if you analyze when we get in debates or doctrinal disputes or at disagreements of any kind, usually if you peel back enough layers, there's probably a whole bunch of pride involved on both sides usually, And it's probably because we're focused on the wrong things. We're not focused on godly edifying kinds of uh, questions. We're probably focused on philosophical debates of who's right and whose opinion is more accurate than somebody else's. And so we're going to forever be debating back and forth and never arriving at something that's going to help us. Now, second thing endless genealogies. You'll notice within those myths and fables and within the pantheon of gods and goddesses in the Greco-Roman world, there are so many complicated genealogy charts of who belongs to who. That's in the the Gentile side. You've also got endless genealogies in the Jewish-Christian side, where they will spend lots of time and rightly so paying attention to their to their family history and some would look at us today as members of the church and say well you're getting caught up in endless genealogies you have family history centers all over the world and you you spend all this time looking to your to your genealogy can you see a huge difference between what they're doing with it and what the lord is having us do with family history Think of the experience with John the Baptist baptizing at the River Jordan. And remember the Pharisees came down and they're kind of looking down their nose at these people who are being baptized by John and saying, well, we don't need that because we have Abraham for our father. And they've, they've got their genealogy pedigree chart memorized. And, and they can say, see, we're good because of, because of who our ancestors are.
1: Yeah, it's almost as if we're doing genealogy to prove that we are awesome versus becoming awesome by doing your genealogy. See, that's that's exactly right. The point is,
0: if we're not careful, we'll do our genealogy to try to get something from our ancestors. And I think that's what's going on here. It's to show preeminence. It's to show dominance. We'll who was your grandpa? My grandpa was so-and-so and he was really important. And so it somehow, it, it f- fuels pride. It, it, it makes me puffed up. It makes me somehow as if I'm better than you because of something my grandpa did compared to what your grandpa's did. That it, It's twisted. Now, think about this. Why do we spend so much time doing genealogical Research, family history work, trying to learn the stories of our of our ancestors and what they went through. Is it to get something from them? Is it to build up our our pride, or are we doing genealogy work? do Do we have so many people across the world spending so many hours devoted to to finding out the names and the dates and the places and the events and the stories of these people so that we can then go to the temples of our God and give something to them. Which directions are the arrows pointing in our genealogical work? Because it's been my experience to watch people doing uh, family history and temple work as a Christ-like extension of God's love for all of his children, both living and dead. Those who have passed on need some things, and so isn't it fascinating when you don't have to bifurcate or separate these efforts, and you can say, wow, by turning the hearts of the children to the fathers, it also turns the hearts of the fathers to the children. We need them just as much as they need us, and we work together on both sides of the veil, to gather Israel in these, this great Latter-day effort that was reserved for our time. No other dispensation was given this responsibility to do this kind of work for that many people th- through all the other past dispensations. It's just beautiful to see how God is accelerating His work, performing incredible miracles in this, in this effort, helping us to become more like Him as he's helping them also to become more like him in the process.
1: And Paul makes this clear in verse five, he says, now the end of the commandment, or meaning the purpose or the rationale for the commandment is charity out of a pure heart and of a good conscience and of faith unfeigned. So, you can imagine Paul has heard that sometimes in the ward meetings, people are debating things that are kind of meaningless or are of less importance than charity and faith unfeigned. And so he's saying, listen, spend your time in things that really matter. Ask questions of consequence that will drive more of God's love into people's lives. It's powerful. And for those of
0: you who have uh, spent significant time in charitable ways doing family history and temple work, you have felt that spirit of Elijah, and it is so tangible, and it, it catches a hold of you at times so powerfully, so profoundly, that it is undeniable. And it's, it's this power, from not just from heaven, but from the other side of the veil, where these people become more real to you. And, and the charity, this pure heart, this pure intent, it grows, and it decreases the pride but it increases your appreciation for God and for these people. And remember Alma 5, one of the questions that he asks so profoundly of the, the people there in Zarahemla when he's trying to set the church in order is, have you sufficiently retained in remembrance the captivity of your fathers? Have you Do you not just know their name, not just know where they were born, but have you retained what their story is, what, what their struggles in life were, and how good God was to them, how much he delivered them. Because if you can see it there, there you're going to be able to see now reflected in your own life how God is doing the same thing in, in your world, in your day. It's such a, it's, it's a powerful reminder for our, to check our motives for why we're doing what we're doing and how we do that which now brings us to verse six through nine, which is this fascinating um, discussion here about the law. Why do we have the law? He's describing to Timothy this idea of commandments and obligations within the covenant context. So he says, from which some having swerved have turned aside unto vain janglings. That's a great a great phrase. I challenge you to use vain janglings in a sentence today. Uh, Turned aside unto vain janglings. The footnote says, missed the mark um, is the swerving, and the vain janglings are vain, idle, fruitless discussion. These philosophical debates of the first century in Ephesus, he's like, "You, you can argue all day long, all year long, and be none the wiser desiring to be teachers of the law, understanding neither what they say nor whereof they affirm. But we know that the law is good if a man use it lawfully."
1: This is so interesting that we often pit Paul against the law of Moses as if he just hated the law of Moses. Now, sometimes he spoke in stark terms to make it clear the liberty we have in Jesus from the expectations of the ancient Mosaic law, but here he is showing a much more nuance and a fuller view of how God operates, that God does provide law, and it is good. Which is, which is a beautiful
0: thing to remember, that whenever you see him speaking so openly um, against an overemphasis of the law, it's to places like Galatia, to the, the epistle to the Galatians, or the Romans, to specific groups of Judaizers or people who are emphasizing, over-emphasizing a a reliance upon the law in order for the law to save them. So, he's pushing back on that. Timothy is not a Judaizer. Timothy is not somebody who's preaching that, oh, the law of Moses is going to save me. So, you see a different tone. You see a different focus or emphasis. He's giving training. It's, It's as if Paul the Apostle takes under his wing this state president and says, Okay, here's what you're going to have to watch for in your flock. And in your flock, the law is good if a man use it lawfully, knowing this that the law is not made for a righteous man, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly, for sinners, for unholy and profane, for murders of fathers and murders of mothers, for manslayers. It's this idea of the law is given because we don't know how to control our behavior. So, God gives us laws, and that's a good thing. In fact, the law, if you take just the straight law of Moses and lived it perfect to the best of your ability, that would help terrible people become good, honorable people. It wouldn't save them because Christ is the Savior, not the law. But it's, it's not a bad thing for them to keep the law. It makes bad men good. Which now brings us to verse 12. I thank Christ Jesus our Lord, who hath enabled me, for that he counted me faithful, putting me into the ministry, who was before a blasphemer and a persecutor and injurious, but I obtained mercy because I did it ignorantly and unbelief. So, Paul is now going into this autobiographical reflective moment with Timothy to say, wow, amazing grace that saved a wretch like me it is basically what he's he's portraying here is, I didn't deserve this. I was terrible. And, and even takes it one step further. He says, verse 14, the grace of our Lord was exceeding abundant with faith and love, which is in Christ Jesus. And then listen to this. This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptation that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I
1: am chief. <laughs> you you can you can hear this throughout Paul's writings. He has not forgotten the salvation he's received. And he it's been so transformative that it, it just permeates all of his writings. That's why you see such a an exceeding emphasis on the grace and mercy of Jesus Christ in Paul's writings, because he recognizes how he has been saved. And it's super useful. I think Paul would, if you stand here, would hope that all of us would feel that enormous burden that we have from sin lifted off by God's mercy and let that dominate our thinking the rest of our lives, like we see with Paul.
0: It's powerful. Look at verse 16. Howbeit for this cause I obtained mercy, that in me first Jesus Christ might show forth all longsuffering for a pattern to them which should hereafter believe on him to everlasting life, or to life everlasting. This is a fascinating concept that he's saying, he's using his own story and saying, this is used. Uh, my whole life, me spending so much time teaching and preaching, and in prison. But you know what I was before. You know what I was doing before Christ picked me up and shaped me into an instrument to then be used in His hand. And He's saying this is a pattern. Those of you who spend any time doing uh, sewing work or as a seamstress or any kind of of Building, blueprinting, you you have all these patterns. What is a pattern? It's you use something that's been done before, you you draw it out, you then use that as your template to replicate and do more. Well, what is Paul asking for? He's asking for more of God's grace that has become embodied in his life and in his existence to not end with him. It's the beautiful principle of the Christ-like attributes of charitable leaders, charitable parents, charitable missionaries, charitable friends, that you let let people see God's goodness in, in you. The point being, let your life be a pattern for people to see God's light and goodness shining we don't generate light and goodness, we reflect it, we grow into it, we become those things following the patterns given to us, not just in scriptures, but with our modern prophets and leaders of the church and with wise people in our circle of influence all around us. So, to finish off chapter one, he shows an example of, of Hymenaeus and Alexander whom he has delivered unto Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. It's this idea that there are at times people who refuse to follow the counsel, who refuse to follow the pattern, who refuse to keep the law as given. And so in this case, it's this, this cutting off, not because Paul wanted to cut them off, but because they've cut themselves off from the source of light and goodness and truth and love, which now brings us to
1: chapter 2. So, again, what Paul is trying to address to help Timothy create order and stability in the ward, or the wards in Ephesus, is there's been a lot of disorder. There's been false teachers who've showed up, and they have puffed themselves up, they've been misleading the people with false doctrine, and they've enticed some people to pay them a lot of money, we saw this in the Book of Mormon, where you had false teachers who wanted to make a lot of money off of what they preached. And it appears that there were certain wealthy women who found themselves very led astray by these false doctrines. And they decided, once the false teachers left, to get up and to continue to spread this message. And so Paul gives some very targeted advice that in that time and that context made sense for that ward, that those women who are standing up and teaching these false doctrines that they learn from the false teachers shouldn't be doing that anymore. And then Paul imposes from the Roman culture, where the man is the head of the household, that the women in those homes should let their husband lead forth. Okay, that was in order to create cultural conformity and to also not have a lot of disunion in the ward. So, if Paul was here today he probably wouldn't use the same specific advice, but he probably would say, there's a principle here. None of us should be stepping up to preach false doctrine, women or men. Now again, back then, 2000 years ago, that specific advice made sense. The principle still true. Let us never spread deceit. Now he does use an example from the Old Testament.
0: Yeah, in this particular instance, Paul uses an example of Adam and Eve, and and it can come across as as very confusing to some or or frustrating. And one of the advantages of living in the latter days uh, with the benefit of prophets, seers, and revelators on the earth with us is we can look to them to help us interpret what does the Lord want us to know about these situations today. So in this particular instance of of Adam and Eve and questions around the fall and men's and women's roles, let's see what modern prophets have taught us.
2: It was Eve who first transgressed the limits of Eden in order to initiate the conditions of mortality. Her act, whatever its nature, was formally a transgression, but eternally a glorious necessity to open the doorway toward eternal life. Adam showed his wisdom by doing the same, and thus Eve and Adam fell, that man might be. Some Christians condemn Eve for her act, concluding that she and her daughters are somehow flawed by it. Not the Latter-day Saints. Informed by Revelation, we celebrate Eve's act and honor her wisdom and courage in the great episode called The Fall. Eve was a heavenly blessing in Adam's life. Through her divine nature and spiritual attributes, she inspired Adam to work in partnership with her to achieve God's plan of happiness for all mankind. The Savior Himself invites all of us, God's children, to come to Him, to partake of His goodness, and He denieth none that come unto Him. Therefore, in this context, we are considered equal before Him. When spouses understand and incorporate this principle, they do not position themselves as president or vice-president of their family. There is no superiority nor inferiority in the marriage relationship, and neither walks ahead of or behind the other. They walk side by side as equals the divine offspring of God.
3: They are equal partners, equal in their potential for spiritual growth and for acquiring knowledge, and so are unified by helping each other. They are equal in their divine destiny to be exalted together. In fact, men and women cannot be exalted alone. Why then does a daughter of God in a united and equal relationship received the primary responsibility to nourish with the most important nutrient all must receive, a knowledge of truth coming from heaven. As nearly as I can see, that has been the Lord's way since families were created in this world. For instance, it was Eve who received the knowledge that Adam needed to partake of the fruit of the tree of knowledge for them to keep all of God's commandments and to form a family. I I do not know why it came to Eve first, but Adam and Eve were perfectly united when the knowledge was poured out on Adam.
4: Women see things differently than men do. And oh, how we need your perspective! Your nature leads you to think of others first to consider the effect that any course of action will have on others. As President Iring pointed out, it was our glorious Mother Eve, with her far-reaching vision of our Heavenly Father's plan, who initiated what we call the Fall. Her wise and courageous choice and Adam's supporting decision moved God's plan of happiness forward. They made it possible for each of us to come to earth, to receive a body, and prove that we would choose to stand up for Jesus Christ now, just as we did pre-mortally. Let's not
0: overlook the, the beautiful blessing we have of prophets, seers, and revelators which now brings us to chapter 3, where Paul gives Timothy instructions on on the qualifications of a bishop. And you can read those qualifications in verse 2 through 7. I've had the privilege, my family, and I'm sure you have, and I'm sure all of you have, this privilege of having had so many incredible bishops and their families serve us through so many years. Um, What an amazing blessing it is, this calling of the bishops and who they are. It's fun to to see the different descriptors that Paul gives for what qualifies one as a bishop uh, as he's training Timothy here.
1: So we have to remember again, when Paul shows up in Ephesus, he's the person who brings Christianity to that area. And it's not like they've had 150 years with church handbooks and lots of models and examples for how to run a ward and how to do so in a way that's organized, that doesn't lead to deceit and people falling away. And so Paul is giving some instructions that so instead of listening to deceitful teachers and people in the congregation who've been led away by the deceitful teachers now preaching whenever they want, let's have some order and let's try this approach where there are leaders who are humble and trustworthy and who are going to teach the simple truths of the gospel like we heard about in chapter one. They're not gonna go on endless genealogies or crazy fables or myths or stories that don't get them centered on Jesus Christ. So, Paul again, one of the things he's trying to do is help Timothy create order in the church so that people are more likely to feel God's love.
0: And the most important thing in creating that order is incidentally mentioned in verse 15, but if I tarry long, that thou mayest know how thou oughtest to behave thyself in the house of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and ground of the truth. If you look at the Joseph Smith translation in the back of your Bible, uh, before the Bible maps, there's an entry there for verse 15, and you'll notice that it emphasizes that the pillar and the ground of truth isn't some metaphorical object or concept or principle. The pillar has a name, and that name is Jesus Christ. It's the Lord himself who is the chief cornerstone, the pillar upholding this church, the house of God, the, this house of order is being um, described here in verse
1: 15. And then in chapter 4, he expresses a bunch of ways that people can create disorder and walk away from Jesus Christ. And if you bring that into the church community or even into society, it has disastrous consequences. And we can look at this list here in chapter 4 and we can say, yeah, fallen human nature is unfortunately alive and well. And Paul would probably, if he was standing here, say, well, I would probably repeat a lot of the same things I said in chapter four. You're more likely to have ordered harmony in your church and in your community if you avoided these things I lay out here in verse uh, chapter four.
0: Yeah, so he begins in verse one. Now the Spirit speaketh expressly that in the latter times, some shall depart from the faith. Now, pause right there. Most of us in the 21st century reading verse 1, we're thinking, oh, the latter times. Well, this is the latter times. This is the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. So, Paul's talking about us. The the reality is is Timothy reading this letter is probably not reading the letter thinking, oh, wow, Paul's describing what's going to happen in the world 2,000 years from now. Now it's totally appropriate for us to liken all scriptures to us and to see how it informs our setting and our world there's that is beautiful, and we're going to do that but first, let's let it reside initially in its historical setting where Timothy's getting this letter to help him in Ephesus govern the church and it's as if Paul is seeing here he is towards the end of his life Paul is seeing that this isn't going to end well for the church. the flock is going to have wolves enter in and consume uh, some of the work that they've done. he's already seen it he's seen so many fruits of this of these false ideas coming to the church so he's addressing Timothy in his day which, He's saying in the latter times, in, in these days that are coming, there are going to be some who depart from the faith. Why? Because they give heed to seducing or deceitful spirits and doctrines of devils. You'll notice the doctrines that pull people away from their, the pillar which is Christ the Lord the things that pull people away from that faithful covenantal connection with Him, they're not—they're not, they're not uh, distasteful things to the to the human ear. They're seducing spirits. They're things that part of us want to be true. There, there's a part of our being that would love for those things to be true, and and we become convinced of them look at the the experience of Korihor in Alma chapter 30 in the Book of Mormon. The devil taught him, and instead of saying, well, this is ridiculous, he taught the things so much and had so much uh, success from people following him that he says, I verily did believe
1: that they were true. Because they were pleasing to me. Here's a really mundane example, candy. I don't, I've never met anybody who doesn't like candy. Does candy give good nutrients to your body? Absolutely not. So it's interesting. We would all agree that we all like candy, but actually, frankly, it's ultimately destructive. And it turns out there are ideas out there that on the face of it, they taste really good when you first consume it, but in the long run, they do damage to your soul and to relationships and to society.
0: So it's, it's this idea of, of spiritual candy coming out that it's going to m- make you feel pleasure. You're, you're going to like what you're hearing or, or doing, but it's not going to lead to lasting edification or lasting relationships with God or with uh, loved ones. Look at verse two, speaking lies in hypocrisy having their conscience seared with a hot iron. It's, these are the tools of the devil, the doctrines of devils. And verse three, forbidding to marry and commanding to abstain from meats which God hath created to be received with thanksgiving of them which believe and know the truth. Keep in mind, there was a lot of debate in the first century in the Christian church around the eating of meat, and it had very little to do with what our debates today are surrounding meat. It was involving idol worship and the appropriateness of even eating meat in the first place. It's fascinating the two things that he mentions here in verse verse 3, forbidding to marry uh, there's this Gnostic tradition that, that is going to come into full swing in the second century and, and into the third and even the fourth century. This idea that uh, it's all about what you know, and the body is is bad, and it doesn't matter what you do with your body. It just matters what you learn. Gnosis. Gnosis. That's where the, the term Gnostic comes from.
1: Actually, our word knowledge or knowledge comes from that Greek word, you can even see it, the the K and the G. Yes. These are some of the challenges that, earlier on, that Paul's talking to Timothy about. Like, there's deceitful teachers showing up in the congregation, teaching these messages, and again, you had a few people, men and women, who had wealth and time get up and they're repeating these deceitful messages, and Paul's like, that's not even the gospel. Why would you go to church and spend any time on messages that are not grounded in truth or revelation, but are people's personal philosophies? What do we call it? The philosophies of men mingle scripture. Paul's just trying to disentangle. Let's just stay fixated and focused on what we know to be true.
0: So, Sister Julie B. Beck gave a talk back in August of 2009 to to religious educators. I'll never forget this moment when I was uh, sitting there and she said quote Korihor was an antichrist antichrist is anti family any doctrine or principle our youth hear from the world that is anti family is also anti-christ." so she does this beautiful comparison and if you stop and think about it family is at the core of our heavenly father's plan for the eternal happiness and progression of his children. So if I'm the devil, I'm gonna do everything I can to disrupt that teaching of the proper role of family relationships in the plan. And so here you get people who are coming into this Ephes- uh, or into these Ephesian congregations and forbidding people to marry and forbidding to abstain from meat. There, anything to disrupt the flow of God's plan in the lives of these people. And by the way, you'll notice that there's a difference between somebody who today chooses to not uh, get married because the option wasn't available to them to get married in the temple or to have that kind of relationship versus one who says, I I don't want anything to do with this. There's a big difference between
1: those two groups. Or specifically that they are preaching the doctrine that marriage is forbidden. So if somebody's preaching that doctrine, that is not what God has made clear in his revelations throughout the years.
0: Exactly, and that's another really important point is the difference between what an individual connected with God decides to do or chooses to do in their life versus what you're telling other people they can or can't do. So, with the abstaining from meats, you'll notice it's commanding to abstain from meats. Um, The the word commanding is added by the King James translators. It's in italics, you'll notice, but it follows with the, the phrase forbidding to marry and to abstain from meats. So, it's forbidding to abstain from meats is the implication here there's a difference between somebody who chooses for their own health and they feel more healthy, they feel better about not eating meat versus standing up in sacrament meetings saying, it is not okay for any of you to eat meat. That, now you've, that person has crossed over a different kind of a line. So now he, he takes it one step further. Um, verse seven. Refuse profane and old wives' fables, and exercise thyself rather unto godliness. For bodily exercise profiteth little, but godliness is profitable unto all things, having promise of the life that now is, and of that which is to come. That idea that I could spend my entire life building my body, exercising my body and being as physically fit as I possibly can and to try to stay as young and vibrant as possible. But at the end, he's saying that would profit me little, but godliness is profitable unto all things. What he's not saying is treat your body with disdain and and don't take care of it. He didn't say that. He's just saying some people can get so focused on one thing that they lose sight of the, the best thing, good, better, best. It's a good thing to take care of your body and to exercise and to eat appropriately. That is absolutely a good thing. But he's saying it's going to profit you little compared to godliness.
1: So again, if Paul was standing here, he would not say, don't take care of your body, but there were people in his society who did nothing to take care of the soul, There were ward members who just thought, it's all about what I do with my body, and that will save me. And he's trying to correct that and say, actually, no, take care of the soul. Take care of your spirit. Again, if he was standing right here, he'd say, absolutely, take care of your body and your spirit. So, again, he's addressing a very specific issue, and so he's speaking in a way that provides an overcorrection that comes out for us. as like, what? Body exercise? I shouldn't do it? Again, he's trying to address a very specific problem where people were only bodily exercising and not paying attention to the things of the Spirit.
0: (laughs) Then to close chapter four, he gives a series of exhortations to Timothy. Verse 12, let no man despise thy youth, but be thou an example of the believers in word, in conversation, in charity, in spirit, in faith, in purity. You'll notice a couple of scriptural examples and historical examples of amazing things that have been been done by people who were quite frankly too young to have been able to do those. Uh, Joseph Smith comes to mind. Samuel the prophet comes to mind. uh, The boy Jesus at age 12 in the temple comes to mind as obviously he's going to be the ultimate example of any good principle.
1: And so, President Monson quoted this scripture almost more than any other scripture. And you might remember, he was called as a bishop around age 21, he was called as an apostle at age 36. And you can, it's almost autobiographical for him (laughs) that he felt pretty young to be in these positions. And he would often quote this when he would teach others about how to mold themselves in leadership roles aligned with Jesus Christ.
0: Now he says, uh, verse 14, neglect not the gift that is in thee, which was given thee by prophecy with the laying on of the hands of the presbytery. Meditate upon these things, give thyself wholly to them, that thy profiting may appear to all. You'll notice this concept of, it's not you, Timothy. It's not about you. It's about God and connecting people with God, and the Lord has given you gifts. He's placed them in you, don't pay attention to your age. Don't pay attention to the physical body perspective. Keep your eye focused firmly on the Lord Jesus Christ and what he's trying to do, and give yourself over to him to be an instrument in his hands, and he will use those gifts that he gave you to perform miracles and to perform the, the tasks, the missions
1: that he had foreordained you to accomplish in this life. So chapter five, again, Imagine Timothy as a state president receiving uh, a personalized handbook of instructions for how to administer the the church. So you have this young, growing ward. It's only been around for a couple of years, and you have different members with different economic situations and different life situations. And Timothy's had questions about, well, how do we take care of people who have different needs? And Paul gives some instructions about, well, here's you should be taking care of the widows. If there are widows that are out there who are not living gospel standards and are misspending money, you probably shouldn't be giving them money. Likewise, the men should be taking care of their families and doing what they can to support their families. So, it's very reasonable advice, and you will notice today that the church similarly tries to provide support and help for all of us to succeed, and we update our policies from time to time based on how people are living gospel principles and are being aligned to uh, principles of thrift and financial stewardship.
0: Which now brings us on that thrift and financial side in chapter six, it's beautiful. He says, he, he teaches this principle as well as anywhere that I know of in scripture. Starting in verse seven, for we brought nothing into this world and it is certain we can carry nothing out. He's reminding Timothy, when you were born, you brought nothing with you, and you're not going to carry anything out of this world either. And having food and raiment, let us be therewith content. That is a word that our world does not love nor champion, the word content. The world we live in, the worldly part of our society that we live in, is constantly driving people to deeper discontent with what I have. It's always thinking the grass is greener on the other side, it's always, it doesn't matter what job I have, I need more money. It doesn't matter how many possessions I have, I need more toys, I need more possessions, I need more land, more property, more. I need more, 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 more. I'm not content with what I have. I've got to get more that the world has to offer. Now, keep that in the context of verse 7. I brought nothing into this world, I'm going to carry nothing out. So, that brings us now to verse 9 and 10. But they that will be rich. Notice the word will implies two things in English. It could be future tense, they that will be rich, but it can also in English imply those who want to be or who desire it's their will to be rich. Look at it in that context. Those who want to be rich fall into temptation and a snare and into many foolish and hurtful lusts which drown men in destruction and perdition. Why? For the love of money is the root of all evil. Quick clarification here. The Greek text for verse 10 does not have a definite article. Some of you are wondering, what what is the definite article? The word the is a definite article. So, the love of money is the root of all evil. Where it's a definite article, it makes it sound like it is the one and only. It is the root of all encompassing evil. The reality without having the definite article in the Greek implies rather that the love of money is a root of all evil. And if you look at biblehub.com, you can see 30, 30 or so English translations of the Greek text, different versions of the Bible. And you'll notice about half of them translated as mm-hmm. the root of all evil, and the other half translated as a root, or a source, a, a, a supplying source, Of all evil, which makes sense because there are many people who have sinned grievously in the history of the world who did that with no root in money per se, which now brings us to this question of therefore, how should we look at money? I know some very, very wealthy people, some of the finest people in the world that God has entrusted great wealth. But it's fascinating to watch how they use that wealth, not to gratify their own pride, not to build up their own kingdom, not to establish their own, their own preeminence over everybody else, but they quietly and powerfully go about using that money to build up the kingdom, to serve the poor, the needy, the afflicted, to help with with, uh, tithes, and offerings, and building temples, and missionary work, and all these amazing things that could be done, for those people, their heart is not set on the money, their heart is on God, so God has entrusted them with great amounts of money, which now is used to build the kingdom of the world. So very important note here in verse 10, the phrase isn't, money is the root of all evil, It's the love of money. So if we seek the money first, that's a problem. And he talked about that. And that comes up in the Book of Mormon too. Jacob addressed that with his people in his speech that he gave them in Jacob chapter 2, when he said, But before ye seek for riches, seek ye for the kingdom of God. And after you have obtained a hope in Christ, ye shall obtain riches if ye seek them, and you will seek them for the intent to do good, to clothe the naked, to feed the hungry, to liberate the captive, and administer relief to the sick and the afflicted. I love that principle. Money is not evil. The love of money, setting one's heart on money, and the power, and the prestige, and the glory that it can bring, that's, that's the problem that, that leads to, to bad ends.
1: So I work in a business school. We teach students how to be awesome at business. And money is the lifeblood of business in the sense that if you don't have money, it's a resource, it's a tool, it's really hard to operate a business. And one of the core principles we teach to students is this very thing. If you are out there seeking to solve problems for people, which in my mind, any good you do to make the world a little bit better in any way, is building the kingdom of God, like we heard in Jacob. So, if you're doing any good that builds a kingdom of God, you're doing anything that makes the world a better place. People sometimes will pay you for the solutions you bring, and that is not a bad thing. So, if you solve a lot of problems, you might end up having a lot of resources and wealth. But notice, you weren't solving problems with the intention of getting resources and wealth. Your intention was, I want to solve problems for people. And I teach students, if you are fixated on loving your neighbor and trying to solve problems that matter to them, the money will take care of itself. And it's actually not only money. When I listen to Jacob's message about riches, it's any form of wealth or tools or resources that are given to us that we can use to bless the lives of other people. And so, sure, money's one thing, but it might be education. It might be physical strength. It might be the ability to teach or to share or to comfort. It could be any form of tool or resource that you can use to uplift other people. And if God has given you an abundance or even little, his invitation is to impart what you have to uplift others. And in so doing, what do you find? Enormous joy.
0: I love that. Look at verse 11, but thou, O man of God, flee these things and follow after righteousness, godliness, faith, love, patience, meekness, fight the good fight of faith, lay hold on eternal life. Remembering that idea that we can't take anything, none of our wealth can go with us, but all of those memories, all of those relationships, all of those uh, Christ-like attributes that we've developed, they will go with us. So money is one of those means that we can use to the end of becoming more like Christ if we are charitable in in how we see it, how we use it, and, and how we don't let it use us. This brings us now to the second epistle of Paul the Apostle to Timothy, um, possibly the very last thing that he wrote shortly before his death. Uh, Christian tradition holds that he is killed by Nero, in outside of Rome. At uh, if you if you ever get the chance to go to Rome, there's Saint Paul's outside the walls, that that uh, basilica, where tradition holds that he was killed by Nero sometime in spring of of sixty eight. So here he is, somewhere towards the the end of his life, he's writing this last letter to Timothy, and it is just drenched with this kind, loving, compassionate uh, apostle speaking words of peace to his young friend Timothy. Look at verse 7. For God hath not given us the spirit of fear. Pause. Put it in its context. We love that verse in the 21st century. But picturing it coming from Paul, Who knows the end is near? He has spent so much time in prison, but this time and in this letter, he makes it very clear. "I, I think this is it. We're right at the end. And he says, God hath not given us the spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. He has this incredible self control and he sees things through this eternal perspective. It's powerful. Be not thou, therefore, ashamed of the testimony of our Lord nor of me his prisoner, but be thou partaker of the afflictions of the gospel according to the power of God."
1: Apparently some of Paul's friends or ward members or people who have been converted to the gospel are ashamed of Paul. They're like, why would I want to be associated with a prisoner? It doesn't help my social status in this very competitive Greco-Roman society I'm in. And so, some people stayed faithful to Paul, but there were a few name's mentioned here in this Second Timothy where he indicates that there have been people who've abandoned him and here he is in his cold cell. In fact, at one point he even asked Timothy, please bring my nice, large, warm coat. It's getting cold in here. <laughs> and So he's been abandoned in many ways and yet he's not ashamed and he doesn't have fear. He recognizes that in the end his treasure is in Jesus Christ. Christ, who hath saved us and called us
0: with an holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was given us in Christ Jesus before the world began. It's that idea of considering the context. Again, he's cold, he's in prison, he knows he's about to die. It's been, it's been miserable. But he's not miserable, because he's not, he's not uh, letting the world dictate how he feels about God, how he feels about himself, and how he feels about other people. Which now brings us to chapter two. Uh, look at verse three, thou therefore endure hardness, endure this th- these difficulties of life, these afflictions, these vexations,
1: as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. It's interesting, Paul is trying to point out that to be a follower of Jesus Christ means that you likely will find tension with the world around you. And so he uses a number of examples of people who have labored for a greater cause themselves. He talks about soldiers, he talks about athletes, he talks about farmers. Then he calls on the memory of what Jesus did. He died for everybody. And even Paul himself is willing to suffer on behalf of other people that they can have better lives. So, what we are learning here is that if we choose to follow Jesus Christ, we should not be surprised if that creates tension with the world around us. And we have to be willing to endure.
0: Isn't that a powerful example that he's giving, this, this idea of soldiers, athletes, farmers. None of those people go and experience incredible success in an event unless they've worked through a long process of preparation and paid the price, the toil, the labor, the hard work to get to that event, whether it's the athletic event, or the winning a a battle, a critical uh, part of a war, or collecting a harvest, it's a long process. And now tied in with teaching Timothy, discipleship is not, it's not an event. It's about a long, drawn out process of devoted, consecrated dedication to the Lord Jesus Christ and there will be tribulation. You're going to get muddy, you're going to get sweaty, you're going to be you're going to get sore. You you're going to get wounded. It's going to be painful at times. But his his point is don't have your focus be on that. Have your focus be on the savior and then whatever else happens along the way, that's all gain. That's all you're getting stronger through those those difficulties. So, let's jump down to verse 21. If a man therefore purge himself from these, the, these bad things that are, that are surrounding you and, and words and ideas and practices that would destroy you, if a man therefore purge himself from these, he shall be a vessel unto honor, sanctified and meet for the master's use, and prepared unto every good work." this idea of becoming a chosen vessel unto the Lord, that you've turned your life over to him, and you've let him shape you, you've let him sharpen you, and you've let him polish you, whatever analogy you want to use, to be an instrument in his hands, to be the right shape, the right uh, uh, feel to accomplish the Lord's work. Look at verse 22, flee also youthful lusts but follow righteousness, faith, charity, peace with them that call on the Lord out of a pure heart. Jump down to verse 24. And the servant of the Lord must not strive, but be gentle unto all men, apt to teach, patient. Have you ever been in a setting where you felt really justified and really uh, right in your opinion and the group didn't take your opinion and run with it. In fact, they might have actually rejected your opinion, your thoughts, your idea, and and you, you know you were inspired. It was a good thing. I love what he's teaching Timothy here is when you're dealing with people, everybody has agency, everybody has experience. They all have their own perspective. And sometimes you're going to share ideas but instead of striving, instead of telling them how dumb they are because they don't agree with your own right opinion, he's saying, try to be gentle unto all, and you're going to be apt to teach and be patient. Again, don't treat relationships like events. Treat it like a garden that's going to take time. You have to plant seeds, you have to prepare the soil, you have to weed, you have to water, you have to add nourishment, you have to protect. It, it takes time, apt to teach. That's what you're doing with your children, that's what you do with church callings, as leaders, as missionaries, as teachers. You, 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 keep, you keep working and you're patient. It's the long game. Not the short game. Don't get frustrated if you go into your class and you see a whole bunch of weeds that weren't there last week. It's okay. Just be patient. Keep working through this process. And in verse 25, he says, in meekness, instructing those that oppose themselves, if God peradventure will give them repentance to the acknowledging of the truth. Such a powerful principle for leadership and for parenting there.
1: So Paul gives additional warnings to Timothy about things that Timothy should expect in his latter days. Paul's latter days, meaning near the end of his life, that Timothy, as he grows older, he's probably going to see an increase of challenges. And in our latter days, that unfortunately, our fallen nature is hard to overcome all on our own when we reject Jesus Christ. There's one here, one verse here in particular that I find compelling. Uh, It's verse seven, ever learning and never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. I confess, I've had the privilege of uh, getting access to lots of education. And there was a moment in my graduate school time, I was walking on the sidewalk, overwhelmed with the crush of information that I was asked to consume and master. And this phrase just reverberated in my soul. And I think learning is deeply powerful, very meaningful. In fact, it's one of the things that I care most about is how do I learn more to be like God? but the learning we should be seeking is a learning that endures, the learning that lasts. God is a God of truth and knowledge. And if we want to be like him, we do need to learn all things, but we should be focused on those things first that matter most. So it's not
0: terribly unlike money. If we go into seeking for the money for the money's power sake, that's a problem. But if we go in seeking to glorify God, and we seek first the kingdom of God, then money becomes a means to an end of being able to glorify God. Same thing with learning. If I go into my education, into my learning experiences, in order to gratify my own pride or puff up my own sense of importance or my own preeminence among among whichever group I wanna compare myself to, then that's a problem. But if I wanna glorify God, and because I wanna glorify God, I recognize, ooh, One of the aspects of how I actually love God is with all my heart, might, mind, and strength. I can actually devote time to dig deeper into my study, not just to the scriptures, but my study of all truth, of things above the heavens, beneath the earth, of history, of languages, of cultures, of peoples, of all these things, for the intent to become A more useful instrument in the hands of the Lord to help build up his kingdom.
1: To do good. And actually that was what was so crushing to me is that I had gone forth to get more learning because I wanted to be a better instrument to serve people. And I felt that the system that I was in was requiring that I was being self-focused, consuming for myself and competing with other learners to prove that I was better than them and I could get the accolades of the world. I just I really, really despised that, I just hated it. I'm like, I just want to gain in the intent that I can do more good and not simply prove to other people that I'm some hotshot or worth something.
0: So, so look at this contrast from verse seven that Taylor already read, ever learning. Well, what's the solution? Uh, President Boyd K. Packer on one occasion talked about reading Second Timothy 3, and he, he was pretty discouraged when he read verse 1 through 5, seeing all of these descriptive words about all of the bad things that human beings can do, and and, and looking at the world around saying, yep, Paul nailed it, not just for his own time, but for our time as well. And it, and it leads to this pretty discouraging uh, downcast feeling. And his point was, so what is the solution? And then he looked down at this very page and Paul gave the solution. It's in verse 15. And that from a child thou hast known the holy scriptures, which are able to make thee wise unto salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus. Notice verse seven, ever learning compared to verse 15, to be made wise. I could know an awful lot of information But if I'm wise, I don't just know the information. I know why I've sought it. I know how to apply it. I know to whom I can best apply it. Wisdom leads to this application of intelligence that gets me towards salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. And then he gives this beautiful uh, description in verse 16, and I'll read the Joseph Smith translation. And all scripture given by inspiration of God is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect, thoroughly furnished unto all good works. Such a powerful uh, connection with what we're trying to do all of us collectively as a church with the Come, Follow Me program, mm-hmm. is to turn to God through a more serious, uh, a broader and a deeper study of his words given to us through the scriptures and through the words of our living living prophets. Now, he finishes chapter four with th- th- this letter, is this farewell to Timothy. He says that these are powerful words starting in verse six, for I am now ready to be offered and the time of my departure is at hand. He's not speaking as somebody who's, who's caught up in himself and, and overly anxious. He's very serene, he's, he's comfortable in his role now that he knows is going to be as a martyr for Christ. Verse seven, I have fought a good fight. I have finished my course. I have kept the faith. Henceforth, there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness with which the Lord, the righteous judge, shall give me at that day, and not to me only, back to his pattern idea, but unto all them also that love his appearing. Now think about who's going to love his appearing. If I've been doing the works of of the devil or works of the flesh when He comes, I'm not going to like that because that interrupts my desires, my appetites, my passions, and my drive to to build up my kingdom, but I'm going to love his appearing if my whole life has been seeking to focus on him and asking God, what can I do to more fully serve thee? Then his appearing is going to be marvelous. And then just one other thought here, verse 11. He says, only Luke is with me. Take Mark. Remember John Mark? He was the companion with Paul and Barnabas on that very first missionary journey who left. And then Mark is the reason that Paul and Barnabas broke up. A sharp contention arose between them over John Mark. Paul apparently didn't love working with John Mark or there was a a conflict between them. And now right before he dies, he says, take Mark and bring him with thee, for he is profitable to me for the ministry. I love that. I love that here at the end, he's reconciled to somebody who in the past hadn't necessarily been his favorite missionary companion.
1: Now we move into this epistle to Titus. Now, Titus is going to be sent by Paul to manage the church on the island of Crete. Now it's important we understand a bit about Crete. In Greek mythology, this is where Zeus was born. The stories of Zeus were very entertaining to people in the ancient world. And Zeus was not the kind of person that we would see as a god of good morals, of chastity, of kindness. He was a liar, a retrobate. But again, he was very entertaining. So people love to still tell stories about the god Zeus who was born in Crete. And the Cretans developed, the people who lived in Crete, a reputation for being liars and unfaithful and many other negative things. Now, likely there were plenty of good people in Crete, but the larger society saw Crete as the origin of Zeus and the place where liars were bred. And Paul deals with this. In fact, it's very interesting. Notice how when Paul begins in verse 2, in hope of eternal life, which God that cannot lie promised before the world began. So, even initially, Paul understands he is trying to help Titus, and by extension, the ward or the ward members in that area understand that the God they worship is not a God of lies and deceit and whoremongering, that God himself, the true God, is one of truth. And so, as you read through Titus, you will see these expressions of Paul trying to orient the Cretan ward members away from the culture that they have grown up with of liars and whoredoms and more to the truth. Abandon what you've grown up with, with that culture, and now accept the culture of truth that comes from God himself. So, you might find this this epistle from Paul, has got some strong words for the people. It's not like he's coming across in super kind and in soft words, he's speaking pretty directly, and it gives you a sense for the the strength of the problem he's trying to address, given the negative culture that the people in the ward in Crete are dealing with.
0: And, and I might add here that if you if you read Titus and you feel like Paul's being too heavy-handed or being even rude at times, keep in mind Paul's not writing this letter to the Cretians, the the Cretans he's writing it to Titus, who's the kind of the stake president once again, because he's going to talk to him about calling bishops as well. He, he's writing it to him on how to deal with better shepherding these people. And so, it's sometimes you'll speak to leaders differently than you do to the, the group of people that those leaders are overseeing. So, that's an important thing to keep in mind. Also, Look at verse 15, in contrast to Zeus, as described here, with the way our God is. Look at verse 15. Under the pure all things are pure, but unto them that are defiled and unbelieving is nothing pure, but even their mind and conscience is defiled. They profess that they know God, but in works they deny him, being abominable and disobedient and unto every good work reprobate.
1: Yeah, they're following the example of Zeus, and Paul is trying to help Titus help the members in that area to give up these habits they've inherited from their Greek background.
0: Exactly, so in contrast to to the patterning my life after Zeus, look at chapter two, verse 13, 14. Looking for that blessed hope in the glorious appearing of the great God and our Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us that he might redeem us from all iniquity and purify unto himself a peculiar people, zealous of good works. (laughs) Zeus would never have done anything to help the people at his expense in any of the, the mythologies, any of the stories. It was all about him, gratifying his own pride, his own passions, his own desires. And now you get this 180 degrees opposite the real example of what a God really is, in Christ, who
1: gave himself for us. So, Paul gives some instructions to Titus about how the ward members or the members of the Christian community in Crete should act. There's a whole bunch of things they should avoid which are very common for people to do as they try to enact the stories of Zeus in their lives. And Paul lists all these things they shouldn't be doing and then he turns 180 degrees and says, And in verse four, but
0: after that, the kindness and love of God our Savior toward man appeared. Let's go to verse eight.
1: This is a really important verse because sometimes people wanna say, Paul is only about grace and faith, which were deeply motivating principles to him. But he understands that both grace and works go together.
0: Verse eight, this is a faithful saying, and these things I will that thou affirm constantly that they which have believed in God might be careful to maintain good works. These things are good and
1: profitable unto men." Again, remember, Paul is not only trying to create Christians, people who are followers of God. He's living in a world and environment, and he knows that good Christians who are living the gospel will be good members of society. Society generally is happier, Better, more prosperous when people are living well and not lying, not deceiving, not whoremongering, not brawling, not drunkards, all the things he lists. And so he is hopeful that not only for their own salvation will they be aligned to Jesus in in their good works, but then in so doing, they will demonstrate to people in Crete in this Greco Roman environment, this is really what it means to have a good life. And to then encourage those people to say, huh wow, I actually could change from all these fables about Zeus, and I can follow living God and find a life of peace and harmony.
0: Which now brings us to our final epistle for today, Philemon, or if you want the, the more Greek way of pronouncing that, Philemon. Philemon is this incredible character who happens to be the bishop or the leader in Colossae. You remember the epistle to the Colossians? It's in the, it's in the region, two to three day journey away from Ephesus. And Philemon's the leader of this small Christian congregation there in Colosse. Philemon had been taught by Paul and baptized. And Philemon is a householder, and as a householder in the first century, he has servants. One of those servants is named Onesimus. Now Onesimus has done something. He's either stolen something or done something wrong in the house of Philemon and he's run away, he's fled. He has escaped. Now in the first century, depending on the the gravity of the, the crime, whatever he had done wrong, he could be killed or at least imprisoned if he's caught. The fascinating thing about this story is as he's running away, Onesimus comes to Paul, finds Paul, and becomes converted by Paul. And after he's converted, Paul says, I'm sending you back to Philemon, but I'm going to send you back with a letter of recommendation from me. Can you picture Onesimus saying, Ah, I don't want to go back? To Philemon, I was a servant there and I didn't like, and, and I'll be in big trouble. I could be punished. I did bad things. And you can picture now, as this middle part of the, the epistle unfolds, the beautiful allegory of the infinite atonement of Jesus Christ coming into play in this story. And this is why this book is my favorite of the overlooked books in the New Testament because it so beautifully teaches these these atonement symbolisms. And you see in this story, these three characters coming to life today. Let's start in verse 10. In um, In this epistle, he says, I beseech thee, Philemon, for my son Onesimus, whom I have begotten in my bonds. So picture Paul taking a mediator, uh, an intercessor role, the role that Jesus Christ takes for us, interceding for me and you, filling the role of Onesimus with God filling the role of Philemon. Now, no analogy is perfect and they all break down eventually. The fact that Paul taught and baptized Philemon doesn't fit this analogy. I get that. But this middle part of the epistle, watch the the letter of recommendation part. Watch how beautifully this teaches the principle. Picture instead of Paul talking to Philemon, picture the Savior speaking to the Lord in behalf of you and me saying, I beseech thee for my son, fill in the blank with your name, or my daughter, your name, whom I have begotten in my bonds. It's in his captivity, it's in his infinite atoning sacrifice that we have become spiritually begotten sons and daughters unto Christ. Uh, Mosiah chapter 5, verse 7, Ether chapter 3, verse 14, to show the, the role of father the fatherhood of Christ. Look at verse 11. Which in time past was to the unprofitable, but now profitable to thee and me. Onesimus has changed. Christ changed you. He changes me. He makes it so that we can become more profitable. Whom I have sent again, there thou therefore receive him, that is, mine own bowels. I've begotten him. Now receive him. He's different than when he left. Jump down to verse 15. But perhaps he therefore departed for a season that thou shouldest receive him forever. You and I left heaven. We left the presence of God for a season that perhaps God could receive us forever. But when we go back, we don't go back the same way as we left. Verse 16, not now as a servant, but above a servant, a brother beloved, specially to me, but how much more unto thee, both in the flesh and in the Lord. So the analogy breaks down a little bit here where he's saying, okay, Onesimus needs to be your brother, not your servant, this this brother in Christ. But in the, the atonement overlay symbolism, it's this idea of us becoming joint heirs with Christ unto God, so receive him in that context. Verse 17, if thou count me therefore a partner, receive him as myself, the Lord saying, take him as if he were me. If he hath wronged thee or oweth thee aught, if he owes you anything, put that on mine account. I, Paul, have written it with mine own hand, and I will repay it. And then the analogy breaks down as he, he goes on to remind uh, Philemon about what Paul has done for Philemon. But up to that point, notice the significance as it connects now with Doctrine and Covenants section 45. For me, Philemon is the storyline for The dialogue in Doctrine and Covenant, section 45, verse 3 through 5, where we finish here. The Lord says, Listen to him who is the advocate with the Father, who is pleading your cause before him, saying, Father, behold the sufferings and death of him who did no sin, in whom thou wast well pleased. Behold the blood of thy Son which was shed, the blood of him whom thou gavest that thyself might be glorified. Wherefore, Father, spare these my brethren that believe on my name, that they may come unto me and have everlasting life.
1: Isn't it great to be in the scriptures and see that even though these texts were written thousands of years ago, they still have resonance today, that right now in your life today, you can say, I can apply these principles in my life, and I can see God's love and light unfolding in my own life. So in closing,
0: it's our prayer, it's our hope for all of us that we can focus on the long perspective, the eternal perspective of loving God and loving our neighbors ourself as we work through the hard struggles and opposition and trials, as well as the good things on this covenant path to become more like God and recognize that the Savior has written us a letter of recommendation. And he's written it by giving his own life and everything that he had for our gain to be able to return into the presence of God and stand there redeemed on the Savior's merits, mercy, and grace alone. And we leave that with you in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.
1: Know that you're loved and spread light and goodness.